to see you all here on this uh, late summer evening, very beautiful evening. Let me just get a sense of who's here first, because that often helps me shape the talk and make sure that I touch things that are of interest to people or I don't assume a base of knowledge or I can assume a base of knowledge. But is there anybody who's here at CIMC for the first time? Well, yay. Welcome. It's not my shop, but I'll welcome you, <laughs> welcome you anyway. I'm a guest teacher. I teach uh, mostly uh, long retreats, and I teach uh, primarily at uh, Insight Meditation Society, which is in Barrie, Massachusetts. So if you went to, uh, took Route 2 and uh, eventually went past Gardner and went up towards the border with Vermont and New Hampshire, you might find the hamlet of Barrie. If you blink, you've probably missed it, but it's a great place for a retreat center. So let me ask, how many of you are here because you have a special interest in this topic of concentration? Some. Some. And uh, is anybody going to um, uh, have a special framework through which they're listening to this talk? In other words, an area of particular interest in relationship to concentration? Jana. Anybody else interested in Jana? Jana. Jana. So I'll talk a, a little bit uh, about Jana, but the talk is mostly framed around the role of concentration in the Buddha's path to liberation. Why you would need it and what kind of concentration is being called for and how it can be cultivated. How many of you have a daily practice, meditation practice? Okay, well, most of the group. And um, how many people here have been practicing for uh, more than a year, more than five, more than 10, more than 20, more than 30, more than you've been alive, <laughs> this lifetime and other lifetimes. Right. Okay, thanks, that helps. So if we were going to address the topic of what's the value of, of concentration practice and how does it fit into the Buddha's system, we could start by saying, well, what's the benefit of concentration in general? Why would you want to have the capacity to basically place your mind on a particular task or on a particular um, sensation or a particular activity at, and keep it there. And when we think of it in that kind of way, it becomes a little bit self-evident why you would want to be able to concentrate the mind, to bring it together, to kind of gather the attention uh, that the mind can uh, 
turn into a searchlight or a focus point, a spotlight, and have it rest relatively easily on what you're doing without it being easily pulled off into distraction or dispersion, getting lost or forgetting what it's doing, or any of those things that are, that are so common. So, of course, we live in an age now where uh, the capacity for distraction is greatly facilitated by our devices, right? Have you ever found yourself in a situation where you've uh, gone online for one thing and, you know, two, two and a half hours later, you're starting to experience unpleasant sensations of one sort or another and you realize that you've just kind of wasted an afternoon or a good part of the evening um, because you weren't really connected with the reason you went there in the first place and the mind didn't actually um, limit its participation to its stated intention and instead kind of got lured away into a chain of investigations or you know linked <coughs> interest of one thing to another and to another to another where to the point where when you finally woke up and returned to what was going on in the room you realized that you had really been on a rather long and uh, kind of surprising uh, spinning out without ever really noticing at any point in particular that you were moving from one thing to another. And not by choice, just being kind of carried away by the pursuit of, of some sensation or some something. So concentration is obviously valuable, whether it's at our ability to stay focused at work with what we've got to get done or be present in a conversation uh, with someone, follow our own uh, stream of thought, being able to <coughs> stay on a task, keep with it in, until the, the end that we uh, anticipated when we set out in the first place. It's really an important ability. And we know, for instance, that uh, many people who are highly successful have well-developed concentration. So, you, you know, if, if you've ever seen, for instance, uh, a pass receiver in the NFL, you know, weaving around the people who are trying to block his catch and then, you know, timing his catch so that he can grab the ball and, you know, drag his feet over the, <laughs> over the, the line just to stay in and then falls outside, right? There's presence in that. Nobody can deny it. Or if you've ever seen somebody who's a, a really skilled musician, whether they're playing uh, a piece of music that somebody else wrote, say a piece of Chopin or something like that, or whether they're a jazz musician and they're simultaneously listening to everything that's going on in the room and being right in the groove, right in the focus, right there with everything that's happening without their mind going to, out to the fight they just had with their girlfriend or boyfriend or, or whatever it is and, and losing, losing the beat. It's concentration. 
or um, someone who's an artist working on a piece of work. I watched a documentary this last week about a woman named uh, Dorothea Lang, who was a, a very uh, wonderful photographer who documented a great deal of what happened during the Great Depression when people were forced to migrate uh, from parts of the of the middle of the country when the uh, fields basically dried up and blew away. And she went down there for the WPA uh, and worked for the government and took pictures of these people and their lives and what it was like. And in the taking of the picture, in the image that she created through this, there was the whole story there because of the quality of her presence. And in this documentary about her, there, there was a scene where she was uh, uh, shown talking to a young granddaughter of hers who was at the beach. And the child um, came up to her and had a handful of seashells, two or three of them, and was showing them to her grandmother. And Dorothea basically said to the granddaughter, do you, do you see them? And the, the child was like, mm hmm. No, she said, do you really see them? Do you really see them? And uh, she herself pulled out her camera and took a picture of the child's hand and the seashells. And when you saw the developed image, you realized that this, this woman, Dorothea Lang, had an incredible capacity to be present, to focus her mind just right where it was, right there with that immediate experience and have it rest there without distraction, without being pulled off or getting lost. So concentration is, is a naturally occurring thing and you can see it in these kinds of natural examples. <clears throat> and then the question comes, well, is the kind of concentration that we're talking about in meditation or as part of the Buddhist path the same concentration or a different concentration than we're talking about in these kinds of examples. So if you were going to do a thought experiment for yourself and you, you the uh, question was, well, if you're a really good athlete who can, you know, jump and leap and catch the pass before it's going out of bounds and remember to drag your feet on the field inside uh, the line, does that mean that you could, say, come into the meditation hall and sit down and focus your mind and be present with the breath or at the nostrils or with the rising and falling of sensation at the abdomen, have that go really well? Any guesses about that? You think it's the same thing? It, it, it is for a rare person, a rare person. So uh, Phil Jackson, you know, who taught the Chicago Bulls uh, meditation, said that Michael Jordan, of all the people that he, all the athletes, professional athletes that he worked with, did have some kind of capacity to really do that, but everybody else 
They were kind of like you. I'm presuming what your experience has been. If you're a regular person. You know, scientists also have this natural kind of capacity to focus the mind, you know, right down in. Uh, you know, software, uh, people who write code, there's a kind of capacity to focus the mind in. But it doesn't necessarily translate to the capacity to focus the mind in meditative practice without having to deal with what the rest of us have to deal with, which is the arising of hindrances to concentration, meaning challenges to concentration. So how many of you are familiar with the hindrances? Okay. Well, really it's like this <laughs> for all of us. We're really familiar with them in that we often have these states of mind present, but maybe we you know, don't think of them within this particular Buddhist terminology. I, earlier, um, when the announcements were being made, I noticed that there's going to be a program um, on the hindrances here at CIMC. And I'm presuming what that means is you're not actually going to be taught the hindrances. <laughs> you're going to be taught how to work with the hindrances, right? How to recognize the hindrances to concentration and to work with them. So the, the two biggies, of course, the two big uh, hindrances are sense desire or craving and aversion, meaning uh, these states that arise where the mind wants, in the sense of sense desire, wants something, wants to get it, wants to keep it, wants to improve upon it, wants to make it uh, arise in the immediate sense, and uh, kind of gets thrown off task with those thoughts and desires and, and wants, and might find, for instance, the breath just not interesting enough to stay with. Perhaps there's a, th a thought that can happen that would make the hour pass more quickly, like maybe a memory of um, the vacation that was uh, happened this summer, or perhaps an anticipation of what's in the refrigerator when you go home at night or something. Sense desire, you know, can easily pull us off track of the main task, the chosen meditation object. And uh, then, of course, there's aver aversion, which is the whole not wanting thing, um, the, a reactivity to unpleasant experience where, for instance, the mind might get kind of pissy about having the experience of trying to be present with the breath and it keep getting lost in thought or forgetting what's going on or, and then it gets kind of mad and then it like does, then that becomes a whole experience in and of itself, right? The arising of anger and aversion. And, I don't want to do this, or maybe it turns into like self-pity. Oh, I'm so bad at this. I'm probably the worst one in here, and everybody can do it, but I can't do it. Right. So that, that's an example of the hindrance to concentration called aversion. And uh, the other three are uh, sloth and torpor. 
sloth and torpor. They sort of sound like what they are, don't they? Sloth. <laughs> you ever see those sloths? The animals move. Right? It's kind of like, yeah, there's something happening there, but there's not a lot of energy. And then torpor is the nods. Uh, then of course there's there's the other other uh, hindrance which is sort of the on the other end of the continuum restlessness and uh, worry where there's energy but it's kind of like the jitters too much too much coffee the mind can't really settle on the task and there's not enough relaxation in the body and the mind to really settle on the meditation object and be present with that kind of spins out and whoa, ricochets around, and whoa, we try to bring it back, and it's like, whoa, it's gone again. And uh, the last one is doubt, which, in, uh, which is, has the hallmark of the, the mind kind of raising objections or potential objections to the whole process or to your own capacities or some combination of those things or to the instructions or to the teacher or you know maybe it's really not the right thing and it has the hallmark of uh, repetitive circular questions for which there is no uh, available answer or information and the mind kind of just kind of gets disabled in its willingness to to make an attempt so I'm mentioning all these hindrances to concentration because they come up in everybody's meditation practice. There is no being who has ever meditated or attempted to meditate that did not have to deal with these, these energies in the mind and learn in order to learn how to concentrate, to bring the mind together. So these are sort of like the guardians at the gate, if you want to put it that way. So when I asked the first question of, why well, do you think the really good running backs or the, you know, the guys that can write code or, the, you know, the, the, the woman who's a really good artist and photographer or whatever, who have concentration, could they come in and just sit down and be with the breath and just rest there and all the rest of that? The answer is generally no, because <laughs> they have hindrances too. We all, we all do. So it's really important to normalize that as part of our experience. And in fact, learning how to work with those particular energies is really the threshold task for you in learning how to open concentration. Because they will come up. You can't wish them away. You can't just uh, get rid of them by an act of will. So learning how to skillfully work with those states is really important as a threshold kind of thing. So having clarified that piece, let's talk about the putting concentration in context. 
because it's really only when you hold it within the context of the Buddhist teachings can you get a little bit clearer about what's at, what it actually is and what's being called for in this uh, meditative endeavor. So there is a specific context in which we're developing concentration here, and it's within the context of the Four Noble Truths and the Eightfold Path. So how many of you have heard of though that? Okay. Good. Okay. Because within the Buddhist tradition, there's a point to this activity. <laughs> there's a point to all of this stuff that we're doing when we're paying attention at, to our nose and things. And it, it goes beyond what would be considered stress reduction or uh, relaxation. It, the intention of this system is basically to train the mind to be able to see its own experience in a skillful way and through seeing its own experience learn from the inside how suffering is created and how suffering can be released. So this is all part of a system of development of the heart and mind in a particular direction and it's in the direction of liberation. Liberation from what we might call discretionary human suffering that is born from ignorance, is born from a kind of not knowing. So we're developing concentration as a part of this process of self-liberation and using it as a tool to clarify our perceptions and our understanding. And, to, and part of that is cultivating what are considered to be wholesome or skillful states of heart and mind, states of non-suffering. So, you know, often in these conversations about concentration, at least on the long retreats, there's usually somebody who raises their hand and says something like, uh, so is somebody who's like a cat, a cat burglar, you know, they have concentration. Is that what you're talking about? You know, did, would you say they have concentration? And the answer is yes, they have concentration of a certain kind, but they don't have what we would call uh, in Buddhist thought wise concentration because it, it is not connected with the Buddha's view, including the view of ethical behavior or sila, uh, the intention, the wise intention towards non-harming uh, and towards renunciation or letting go. So it's not wise concentration. So in answering that particular question, does a cat burglar have concentration? I said, yeah, there's some kind of concentration there, but it's not wise concentration. That's not what we're talking about here you can see I'm suggesting that in order to understand any one part of this Buddhist system, you have to understand that 
it's informed by the rest of it. So everything needs to be read or understood within the context of the Four Noble Truths and, and the Eightfold Path. Because that's, that's what it's all about. So that means we're talking about concentration informed by wisdom and directed towards the cultivation of wholesome states of mind, meaning states of non-greed, non-hatred, non-delusion. That's the negative language. It's telling you what there isn't in there. But another way you could put it is states of generosity, states of loving kindness, states of compassion, states of wisdom. And in particular, the kind of concentration that we're talking about is accompanied by mindfulness, this kind of receptivity, present tense, allowing, uh, kind, nonviolent, interested awareness, present tense awareness, that isn't overwhelmed by the five hindrances, right? So those five states that I talked about earlier, the sense desire, craving, the aversion, the uh, sloth and torpor, restlessness and worry and doubt, those at least at the time when wise concentration is present are not there, they're not online. The mind has slipped through that kind of breakwater of those states and uh, instead wholesome states are there including mindfulness. So you could say that what we're cultivating this liber liberative concentration is entwined with and accompanied by many other skillful and wholesome states of mind. So it's wholesome in and of itself, meaning skillful, rooted in these uh, uplifting, non-suffering states of mind, and it's directed to liberating ends. So you can see that it's not a standalone kind of thing. And that gives you a kind of clue about some of the things that need to be present if you're trying to develop concentration. So certainly some of the things that need to be present if you're trying to develop concentration include things like patience, one of the, the paramis or perfections of heart, uh, renunciation, the capacity to let go of other things and other priorities when you're in the process of uh, developing concentration, mindfulness, uh, wise energy. So when concentration develops, it's always developed admixed with these other things which support it supported opening. So there's another question that can come up too in this investigation which is, okay say you have concentration and it's wise concentration meaning it's not, you're not being a cat burglar and you know may, maybe some of these you know, other wholesome states of mind are, are present there too. 
Is that state, is concentration that's, that state, is that going to be sufficient to liberate the mind? So, so there's a, a couple stories that come right from the, the Buddha's biography that kind of give you a clue to that question. So if you know anything about the Buddha's biography, you know that he left a sheltered environment after getting a kind of existential shock when one day he left his uh, overprotective environment and went out and came into direct contact with old age, sickness, and death, uh, as illustrated in coming across an old man, a sick person, and a corpse, and then saw someone who was a renunciate, a spiritual practitioner, who seemed to be at peace and radiant, and the Buddha said, oh, there's a problem. Uh, there's a problem here with uh, existence, because now I see where it's all going, and uh, somehow hanging out uh, in the uh, winter palace with the, with the dancing girls and musicians just isn't really going to cut it. So he began his, his search, his spiritual search at that point. And the, he had teachers. The Buddha had a couple of teachers. And so he went to teacher number one and studied with teacher number one and that teacher was basically teaching concentration. He was teaching concentration states. He was, and the Buddha was a very adept student, as you might imagine, and uh, after making full effort, managed to learn how to enter these concentration, concentration states and abide there. You know, states of great bliss, states of great light, you know, uh, beautiful qualities of the heart and he could enter these states and he could stay in these states and he could abide there at will not have to come out until he wanted to basically and he got really good at it and at the end of his mastery he said well thank you teacher I'm very grateful to you for teaching me about this and I'm going to have to uh, head on out because this doesn't do it. I, I can enter these states, I can enjoy these states, they're very beneficial, they're beautiful, they're wholesome, they're relaxing, they're wonderful, and then they're over. So I haven't found the source of suffering in my own mind. I haven't undone it. So then he went to a second teacher who also taught a particular uh, form of concentration. And he studied with him. And again, it was the same kind of experience where he gave himself fully to it and mastered it and learned how to do it and was able to do, I don't know what the, the second was, <clears throat> enter beautiful states, you know, summon images of casinas or other objects and or images of gods and goddesses and 
feel their radiant energy and their whatever it is and rest there and be there and merge with it and be present to it for as long as he wanted and had the same experience which is at a certain point you come out of it and it's back to samsara so he then did the flip kind of thing which was okay I have to leave my task is not done and he said well if you know ent learning to enter these beautiful states these wholesome states of mind and abide there is not the thing then then maybe there's a problem with the body maybe what I've got to actually do is to learn how to subdue the body and kind of like just repress its needs and its senses and you know give it some discipline and make it get on board so it's not distracting it's not you know pulling for attention it's not and he went into this period of great austerity where he basically nearly put an end to himself by denying himself food and sleep and all of this and eventually figured out well that's that's not <laughs> that's not it either okay I've, I've been pursuing the beautiful and the pleasant and then I was doing the the punitive and the uh, non-allowing and the pushing away of you know the, the needs of a human body and mind and I'm still it's still kind of a mess and it said at a certain point in his search he had a memory of being a child sitting under a tree during some kind of um, planting ritual that was going on in his father's kingdom and his father had a plow or something and was plowing some furrows and he was sitting there in the shade under the rose apple tree and was feeling happy and relaxed and contented and his mind was completely present so there was unification of mind it was a pleasant experience it was kind of uplifting and he had this strong intuition that okay this is the way yes it's true it's not found in it is not found in the pursuit of pleasant sensation that's not the thing just follow the follow the breadcrumbs of pleasant and you're going to get there but it's also not necessarily true that things that are pleasant including this state of a unified mind with with radiance with calm with a sense of well-being there's nothing wrong with that in fact I can see how that kind of state of mind that unified radiant present mind would be a really good base to use in meditation to meditate from and he said oh there's a kind of wholesome pleasure in this there's a kind of pleasure in here that's skillful and onward leading and is not anything to be afraid of and in fact I can see it's really useful and it was with that realization that he then went and sat under the Bodhi tree and had the experience of liberating his mind through clear seeing through wisdom using his capacity to concentrate the mind to bring it into the present to 
be able to be uh, fully receptive and, and engaged with what he was experiencing or as he would put it, with what theme he was investigating without the mind wavering, without it wandering, <clears throat> without it grasping, without it pushing away, without there being it being thrown off by sloth and torpor or restlessness and worry or doubt. So while concentration alone is not sufficient to liberate the mind, the truth is it's a really useful tool and probably a necessary tool, some level of it. Because if, as I said earlier, the process that we're uh, engaged with here has to do with the mind, the heart-mind, learning to be able to uh, observe its own moment-to-moment -moment experience in a way that's steady and skillful, that capacity of mind to gather its energies inward and to continuously stay with that kind of knowing is what allows it to actually observe in a moment-to-moment -moment way. So it's a very powerful tool, this concentration. And as I hinted at earlier when I was talking about um, the Buddha under the rose apple tree and his realization that there, it's a pleasant thing and it's a kind of uh, good kind of pleasant thing and trustworthy uh, when it's accompanied by uh, renunciation and wisdom, a mind that's concentrated can experience a great deal of pleasantness in turning awareness just to things that are very simple. So, you know, and some of you have probably had this experience in meditation of um, being with the breath and at a certain point perhaps the thoughts kind of move more into the background and um, you don't go off as easily, maybe the, you start to feel at least like you're in the room, you know, then maybe you can, you're feeling like you're there on the chair. Then maybe you're, may not be like right there at the breath, at like the center of the breath for every single breath, but the mind doesn't go that far away. You know, maybe there are thoughts going on in the background, maybe there's other things happening, but it doesn't go too far away, and you, you can start to get the feeling like, oh, it's starting to gather, this capacity for presence is starting to gather. And this can become a very, very powerful experience when the mind is concentrated. So you may have the experience, or it is possible to have an experience at a certain point where, for instance, you have, for the first time in your life perhaps, you realize that you're completely present, say with the sensations of the breath at the nose, and there isn't any thinking going on. It's cut off. Then of course the thought arises, I'm not thinking. <laughs> oh shit. <laughs> you know, and it could be just for a breath or half a breath or, you know, it could be for five minutes. 
you could have the experience some, sometimes when the mind is getting really concentrated where the sense is, is that the only thing that's going on, the, mind, the only thing that the mind is knowing is just the sensations of the breath. And this object, this seemingly simple and relatively neutral for most of us meditation ob object of the sensations of the breath can become very interesting. Have you ever had that experience of the breath becoming very interesting and kind of magnetic? If you haven't had this experience, um, take me tentatively uh, as, a, as a reasonable advisor that this is a possibility. And in that, in that, we start to learn some very important things, which is there are the physical sensations themselves, and then there are all the other mental factors and attitude of mind towards what's going on. And the mind can actually find a deep kind of calm and tranquility and settledness and contentedness with this very simple sensation of the breath to the point where it actually prefers it. So that so other things that previously say were alluring more along the sense desire hindrance line or annoying or irritating more along the aversion line or uh, kind of lacking in energy along the sloth and torpor line or too much energy along the restlessness and worry or agitated as in doubt, those things don't really come in. They're not really part of the picture. There's a, a different kind of seclusion of mind as it's often described where the mind is just there with what it's knowing and there with what it's experiencing and it's happy to do so. And that goes back to what the Buddha discovered about concentration being actually wise concentration and being a wholesome, pleasant thing. Oh, then of course, you know, especially when this initially happens, then the, what usually happens is then the mind gets all graspy, right? It's like, oh. I got it now, I'm going to hold on to it, right? Which is, so a little hindrance creeps in under the, under the edge of your tent. You know? Oh, I know how to do this now. A little pride comes in. Oh, I got this down. It's not, nothing's going to break this up now. I finally got it, right? Then something changes and the experience becomes otherwise. And then, of course, the mind doesn't like that. And then there's a big fit of aversion towards having lost this experience of seclusion. So that's where skill in recognizing the hindrances and working with them uh, and patience really comes in. You can see how many times we need to start again and again and again and again. So let me talk a little bit about the the cultivation of concentration or the role of concentration in uh, the two main types of Buddhist practice within our tradition. So 
How many of you are insight meditation practitioners or Vipassana meditation practitioners? Okay. And how many of you are uh, Brahma Vihara practitioners? Metta? Okay, fewer. So in Vipassana meditation, or insight meditation, the usual way concentration develops is that mindfulness comes first. Right? That quality of present tense knowing, receptivity, that gets established first. And of course, it's weak at first and it wobbles all around and we continually forget and then all the hindrances come up and we're flooded with the hindrances and then we get discouraged and get annoyed and then we're like into doubt and wondering why we're doing this and all the rest of it. But eventually if you continue, if you learn to recognize and not be uh, thrown off by the hindrances and just go like, well, okay, this is, <laughs> this is aversion now. Okay, let me open to aversion. Let me bring mindfulness to aversion. <coughs> If the mind learns how to do that, then mindfulness can, can be established. When mindfulness is established, concentration will follow when mindfulness becomes more continuous. Concentration will follow. And concentration in insight meditation practice doesn't have to do with like choosing one thing and sticking to it. It's instead turned towards seeing the impermanence of experience. So it's not, once concentration is well established, it, for instance, doesn't just cling to the breath, but rather it turns awareness towards noticing change within the sensations of the breath, if the breath is well established, or if other uh, experiences arise in the mind and pe become predominant, then there's a knowing of what those experiences are and allowing them to. So it'll take mindfulness and concentration, basically take a flow of objects, right? Whichever is dominant, predominant, that's what you can know once you've established some mindfulness and concentration. So the kind of concentration that's going on there is turned towards the direct cultivation of wisdom in seeing the impermanence of experience and seeing that holding on, trying to control what you're experiencing, how it is, what comes next, what it should be like, what shouldn't be like, all the rest of that. You start to see, well, there's this big cloud of struggle around this really kind of simplistic task of just sitting down and being present, allowing the mind to settle and just knowing what's going on moment by moment, just as it is. And it starts to see the struggle and it starts to see, well, you know, when, it, when, I, when struggling is going on like that, there's a problem because this kind of holding on, it doesn't work. Have you noticed this? Have you ever had the experience of trying to keep your experience from changing or to uh, make it be a certain way and have it stay that way or turn the selectomatic to only pleasant experiences and get rid of the, the knee pain or get rid of the sleepiness 
right? So we find out it doesn't work. It hurts to try to do that, right? It brings up agitation in the mind and a sense of futility and suffering. And the third point, which the mind eventually gets, is that it's unnecessary to do this. Or one way to put it is the mind starts to realize that all phenomenon self-liberate, meaning they're going to go away anyway. <laughs> okay, you don't need to worry about it so much. Just stay with what's actually happening. Stay, stay with the knowing. Give up the struggle around what's immediately manifesting. Really, there's enough to attend to right there. That's plenty. Just attend right there with what's immediate, what's predominant, what's there with mindfulness and some collectedness of mind and, and goodwill. Oh, now this is a little bit more doable. Once it, the mind turns from trying to control what it's experiencing or dominate it and instead turns towards uh, receiving it and knowing it, allowing it, Oh, now this is a little bit easier. So this Vipassana practice is what you could call a wisdom practice, meaning the mind is getting, or this whole system is getting clued into how things really work and what's really going on through its own direct observation. And from this it learns how to harmonize with what's actually happening rather than having a big veil of delusion going on around it or covering over it or fighting with it or trying to control it or uh, identifying with it. So concentration is developed in Vipassana practice as part of this process as are other wholesome states. Because really to be able to take the seat and stay there and allow it allow what's going on to be as it is, there has to be some sort of foundational uh, goodwill towards yourself and towards this endeavor. There has to be some kind of renunciation or letting go of you know, your more immediate agendas of how it should be or how it shouldn't be and all the rest of this. So the, the concentration that you need in order to do Vipassana practice is not what's called absorption concentration, where you get like totally uh, riveted to, to something uh, and the capacity to observe change is no longer present. You want to be able to observe change. That's the whole point of uh, Vipassana or insight meditation practice. And for most people who are doing Vipassana practice, concentration emerges relatively late in the process. Right? Because you have to establish mindfulness first and you have to have some idea of how to work with the hindrances. But it is necessary for the practice to reach depth and to really fulfill its liberative uh, potential. Now there's another way that you can develop um, concentration directly. I said, you know, it arises as part of the process of doing insight meditation practice. Once you establish mindfulness and um, some other qualities, concentration will come. But there are other ways that you can develop concentration more directly. So have people heard the um, term shamatha? Okay, some people have heard that. 
So there's a whole kind of suite of practices where you can develop concentration directly as a kind of primary emphasis. Mindfulness is also always part of the, those cultivations as well, for reasons I'll, I'll talk about in a minute. But um, there are ways that you can directly develop concentration. And, and if you have directly developed concentration, that can really be valuable for you in your insight practice. So as long as we're using sports images today, I'll say uh, you could consider it like um, if you're a football player, if you playing football and lifting weights are two different things, right? They're two different activities. But if you've done a lot of strength training, for instance, it gives you some of the attributes that you need to have that kind of explosive power to really be able to do what you need to do in order to play football. So these... <laughs> must be getting ready to be football season. So, um, so some of these other practices can help bring up concentration in particular. And if concentration's there, then that capacity for steady focus and non-distraction is going to be more easily available to you. Uh, and you'll also be starting with a little bit more calmness in the mind, a little more tranquility in the mind, which is a big part of these concentrated states. So let me just briefly talk about uh, shamatha or concentration meditations and what they are, some examples of these for you. So here you're developing concentration as a primary thing, although, as I said, mindfulness is always got to be part of this. So the breath is a meditation object that you can uh, use or attend to in a way that makes it e either a concentration object or a vipassana or insight practice object. So I'll tell you the difference, right? If you're working with the sensation of the breath, say, at the anapana spot, which is here, the upper lip, the, the nostrils around the nostrils. You're giving the mind a pretty small target to attend to, right? Too small a lot of times, right? If you've ever had that example of like, <laughs> you know, I've seen people like, you know, uh, put lotion on their fingers and <laughs> You know, try to get some sense of what's going on there, you know, something. <laughs> so it's a small target. Uh, attending to a small target when the mind is relaxed and uh, not agitated, and then just staying with that small target uh, to, the, to the exclusion of other things is a way that you can use the breath to cultivate concentration. Now, I'll emphasize, this is not Vipassana practice if you're holding on to the, the breath to the exclusion of all other things under all circumstances, right? But it can be a way uh, to actually practice concentration. And in fact, using that particular spot um, 
as a concentration spot. In some uh, ways of teaching concentration or shamatha practice is the entry point to doing things like um, seeing nimittas, which are you know light images that then become the object that the mind attends to to be in order to be drawn into deepening concentration states. So that's if the mind is inclined to that kind of thing. A minor that's probably for a minority of people that would have the inclination to pursue that. Um, because of the challenges that it, it presents. But another shamatha or concentration practice that is a really wonderful practice that is recommended for everybody is using the Brahma Vihara practices. People know what I'm talking about when I say Brahma Viharas? Okay. So these are basically uh, what could be described as attitudinal practices where we're basically choosing to generate a certain set of internal phrases that represent particular wholesome intentions. So uh, an example of this would be the Brahma Vihara practice of metta or loving kindness, loving friendliness. So in order to do this, you're cultivating, uh, in the classical sense, you would, for instance, start with uh, an image of yourself or, or another being. So you would hold a picture or some sort of felt sense of another being. And then you would generate the intention of goodwill towards them and internally re recite phrases that represent that intention or those kinds of thoughts. So it would, it would be thoughts like, uh, um, may you be happy and safe. May you be healthy and strong and live with ease. Right? So you're using the active capacity of your mind to think and to think certain kinds of thoughts turning your mind in a wholesome direction. And then the concentration piece of this is that's what you're doing. You're, you're, you're committed to doing that, this process with these phrases and images and intentions and not allowing yourself to be drawn off into other things, right? That's the concentration piece of it. So the mind may generate hindrances, of course, and objections to this, which is perfectly normal and natural. May you be happy. Yeah, but you're a mess. You're never going to be happy. What am I kidding myself? Uh, right? So the, the objections to these process, uh, the hindrances come in. They come in in different ways in these different practices. And you would practice letting go of the hindrances and just you know keep on keeping on doing this turning of the mind in a, a uh, with the intention of goodwill uh, towards self and towards others, right? So this is a way that the mind can unify itself, can bring itself together, and at the same time it's kind of collecting its capacity to stay with this theme, to stay with this activity, to stay with this process uh, of doing this meditation. 
you're also seeding in the mind very wholesome states of mind, right? States of loving kindness, states of uh, renunciation, states of compassion, you know, patience, mindfulness, uh, energy, resolve, all of this, right? So you're getting a lot of benefits from that kind of practice. And if, if you did that, for instance, on a, a meditation retreat, there are meditation retreats you can do that uh, where this suite of practices, uh, the Brahma Vihara practices, are what's taught and what's trained. You would basically be doing this every sitting period, every walking period, and once uh, this is well established, you would be doing this when you were walking around the building and <clears throat> doing your daily activities too. Except maybe when you were chopping vegetables <laughs> or something, or <laughs> you might have a slip. And again, it's this, this same sort of experience where you start with these activities where at the beginning, you know, this may sound interesting to some of you and this may sound like completely dry and like bonky to others. It's like, oh my God, I have to sit, do this. And like, I can't, you know, I have to keep thinking this kind of, right, see the resistance. I have to keep thinking this kind of thought. That's a hindrance, by the way. Um, but the mind can become very absorbed in this activity of, of offering these phrases and generating the, this intention. And very beautiful states of heart and mind can, can open up. Uh, and, you know, especially on longer retreats, I've, I've heard other teachers say, you know, when there's some question about whether somebody who was on retreat was doing this practice or that practice, and they'd say, oh, no, I think, I think he's doing metta because he's smiling over there, you know. He's like, he looks really happy. So, you know, it can, it can bring up a lot of joy. It can bring up a lot of, a lot of happiness in the mind. So... <clears throat> A lot of internal safety can be generated in, in doing the Brahma Vihara practices as well. So there are a lot of there are other shamatha practices too, and I'll just just mention an example of an, another one. So these are standalone concentration practices. So like the 32 parts of the body meditation is one that's sometimes given uh, under the teacher's supervision for people who struggle a lot say with uh, lust or uh, narciss personal narcissism, where basically, you know, it would be a visualization exercise where different parts of the body are visualized in as great a detail as possible, and you kind of run through the secret sequence and run through the sequence. And it's kind of a deconstructive uh, process. Uh, so different ones of these are kind of prescribed for people of different temperaments and different, different issues. Um, so that's a lot. That's a lot. So why don't we stop right there and let me ask if there are particular questions or points of interest that you'd like to explore further. Anything that I've said or that I haven't covered.